This is episode 321, dated Friday, August 18th, 2023. You are listening to the In Perspective weekly podcast with Bob Branco and Peter O'Toole. Hi, everybody. Welcome once again to In Perspective. My name is Bob Branco. This is episode 321, dated Friday, August 18th, 2023. Before we continue, let me introduce our good friend and co-host, Peter Alchul. Peter, how are you? Good afternoon from Columbia, Missouri, where it's a beautiful day here, but beginning on Sunday, it's going to be 100 degrees for the next five days. So uh, I'm sorry uh, to hear that. You uh, folks in Missouri and places south and west must be really sick and tired of all this this year. It's incredible. Well, we've had we've had a great week this week, weather week. So I'm I'm blessed for that, but not not next week. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) Allow me to thank those people who make it possible for In Perspective to be made available. We start out with Tom and Lynn from Rosie's Place chat line. Thank you for posting our programs on Board 15. Our media sources, thank you for airing us when you do. I also want to thank Raymond Gay, our executive producer and editor, for making our show a quality program. Of course, a lot of other people contribute to its quality as well. And finally, Jacqueline Sylvia of JS Web Solutions, who archives our programs on my website, which is www.brancoevents.com. Just go there. Click on In Perspective Podcasts and decide which show you want to hear. Merci, Jackie. I also want to add some thanks to Stephen Bauer, who is generously hosting our show today. And I also want to give a couple of shout-outs to two listeners who always write in, let us know how they feel about the programs. That would be Lillian Johnson and Randa Hasley. Thank you very much for offering your feedback about In Perspective. There is a gentleman on the line right now, our special guest, who has quite a story to tell. I've known Everett O'Neill for approximately 10 years. As a matter of fact, I first met him when we were on the Project Starfish team. We can talk about Project Starfish if we have time. It's an employment subcontractual venue that was started back about 2012 or 2013. Everett was a part of that. So we became friends, and in the process, he started to talk about his health issues, and he has quite the story to tell. Everett, welcome back to In Perspective, because I recall you were on the show in 2019 with this same story, and I thought I would bring you back to tell it again. Thank you, Mr. Marco. Um, Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure indeed. So, Everett, it started out with a diagnosis that, the hospital gave to you back in what 2008 was it or 2006 um 07 07 describe what happened Everett before you do that you don't mind forgive me Bob for for intruding on you but could you talk about your life pre-diagnosis what were you doing before you ran into your health issues hello can you hear me yeah go ahead Everett Everett can you hear me Everett go ahead I, I can hear you so I started off, I lived in a um, a project in Boston called Cathedral Projects. Uh, it was a pretty uh, pretty different neighborhood is the nicest way to put it. Um, you know, you had your, your own kind of things. You had, uh, you know, violence here and there and so forth. But, you know, it's what I used to call home. Um, 
raised across the street from a giant Catholic church, uh, which is like, I think, world renowned. And um, I was raised Catholic. Um, always kind of felt isolated, always kind of felt different. Um, one of eight siblings. Uh, three of them were born uh, before me. So I was kind of the runt for a while and was consistently, of course, picked on. <laughs> um, and then as I grew up, uh, when I hit about nine years old, um, my little brother was born. And I started learning how to take care of him. And then when I turned 10, my little sister was born. And I started learning how to take care of her. So, you know, I have one little brother, three little sisters. Uh, two nephews and three nieces at one point I was taken care of on a very regular basis. Um, I grew up as the caretaker of my family because, um, you know, nobody really wanted to do the caretaking perspective. So that was kind of my job. My mother, uh, when I was, how old was I? I was like about 14 or so years old where my mother got a really bad back injury which landed her out of work, and I was taking care of her. And then when I was about 16 or so years old, uh, my mother ended up having my baby sister, and uh, through stress, she ended up having a massive stroke. So I began, um, you know, taking care of, you know, the four younger siblings, uh, two nephews and three nieces um, by the year 2021. And then, of course, you add my mother on top of that in about 2002. And uh, everything was just, you know, really crazy. I lived in a really bad neighborhood. Um, so consistently, you know, just going out to the store to get groceries became a challenge. Um, I then hit 20 years old, and I always had these nosebleeds that would often come on during you know, the change of the season from hot to cold, cold to hot, whatever. And I started having these nosebleeds and these nosebleeds were lasting, instead of lasting, you know, five, ten minutes, they were lasting two, three plus hours. Um, Hold on, excuse me a second. I hear some breathing. Is somebody unmuted? Please mute whoever that is. Only Peter, Everett, myself, and Steve should be unmuted at the moment. I'm sorry, Everett. Go ahead. No problem. I heard it, too. Um, so I ended up, um, you know, filling up Ziploc bags with blood and gauze um, with these uh, drops that were about the size of half a dollar. And my mother called the ambulance. Uh, the ambulance took me into a famous hospital while here in Massachusetts. And the doctor looked at me, and he goes, we're going to cauterize your nose. And, you know, he didn't give me a scan. He didn't give me an x-ray. He didn't give me a CAT scan or anything, an MRI. He just said, we're going to cauterize your nose. So they attempted to cauterize my nose without giving me any kind of uh, numbing agent. And I couldn't stay still for that. So they shoved a balloon up my nose. And he sent me home. Uh, after a couple of weeks, uh, they took the balloon out my nose and they let me kind of resume life. They said everything was fine. But what started happening was pieces of the picture started missing out of one of my eyes. And I used to have 2010 vision. My vision started to decline very rapidly. From uh, April of 06, going all the way down to December, I couldn't even see my hand in front of my face. 
and it was so bad that everybody said, oh, you know, you, you, you just need glasses. People were saying to me, stop playing around and so forth. And I'm like, I'm not playing around. Like, I really can't see these things. So I went to an eye doctor at LensCrafters, and he looks at my eye. He goes, holy moly. I go, what? He goes, I can't tell you. And I go, why? It's my eye. He goes, I want you to go to the hospital, like, ASAP. And we're like, really? And this is, like, on New Year's Eve of uh, 2006. So he goes, yes. He said, go in there. He said, well, they took a look at your eye. They don't, they don't know what's happening. So I said, okay. So, uh, you know, New Year comes in. 2007, I go to Mass Pioneer. That looks at my eye. He says the same thing. We have the same dialogue, except that he tells me, I want you to come back for an MRI. I said, okay, fine. So I come back that Monday, and it's like, you know, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the morning. They do an MRI. The doctor comes out with his hand over his mouth, and he's just standing there staring at me, looking back and forth at my imaging. My father said, hey, uh, what's up, doc? You know, what's going on? The doctor said, you want the bad news or the good news first? I figured I'd take, you know, the dessert before I have dinner. So I said, I'll take the good news. And he said, um, no, I said, I'll take the bad news, sorry. He said, bad news is you have a tumor in your head the size of a melon. It has grown teeth. It has eaten through a good portion of your skull and your face. It has grown tentacles, networked throughout your brain. It has wrapped itself around pretty much your neck. So then I asked him, and he said, it's suffocating you also from the inside out. But I said to him, I said, so then what's the good news? He said, you're alive right now. We have no idea how that's possible. So I immediately started praising God. <laughs> it wasn't... Um, I'm sure where life was going to lead me. Got admitted to the hospital. Doctors consistently looked over to me, looked over at me. They were super amazed that I was intelligent. I can function and everything seemed to be okay from the outside looking in. So I had a wonderful uh, female doctor after having a couple of really bad doctors. And one doctor in particular, I won't name his name. He just looked at me as something that was going to get him in the history books. And he said, you know, hey, I'm just going to, you know, cut your head open, take the tumor out, and you're most likely going to die, but it's okay because uh, it's going to happen. And uh, my mother, you know, of course, argued with him about it. And he said, your son is no longer your son. He's my property now. So a doctor's uh, nurse assistant was walking by and overheard the way this doctor was talking to my mother and talking to me. And the doctor told me, essentially, uh, you're my property. And pretty much those exact words. So another doctor comes walking in, and the doc, the original doctor says, who are you? And she says, my name is such and such. And she goes, how long have you been working here? He said something like seven to eight years. And she goes, yep, I've been working here for over 25 years. Get to the back of the line, bucko. And he said, well, you can't take any more patients. You're, you're full. And she says, yes, I can. She said, I just made room. And she introduced herself to me. 
So everything seemed like it was good. She conducted my first surgery, which she cut the tumor out of my nasal cavity uh, to do a biopsy on it. But the remainder of the tumor, tumor was still there. And they said, you know, it seems to be a very slow-growing tumor. We're going to be fine. So next thing you know, about a year and a half later, I end up having really bad gallbladder pain. And it just manifested as stomach pain. I ended up going into the hospital, being rushed to the hospital. They found that I had gallbladder stones. Now, me having the gallbladder stones, they tried different diets and everything like that. But the moment I started eating regular food, my levels, some levels they were testing would go up. And so we're going to have to do a surgery and cut your gallbladder out and remove it. I had no knowledge of this, so I just said, yeah, yeah, okay, fine. So next thing I know is they are prepping me for surgery, and they wheel me into the um, operating waiting area. And the doctor comes up to me. He goes, hey, he goes, um, I have a student here, some students here. You know, they're, gonna, they're aspiring doctors. Is it okay if they watch your surgery? I said, sure. So then they walk out, and um, a few minutes later, another person comes in and he goes hey how are you doing and he goes listen he said I have a pill for you that's going to help relax you um, for surgery if I give it to you will you take it I said sure so he walks away comes back a few minutes later gives me a pill and this sour stuff to take it with so I take it and he walks away and then he comes back and I'm starting to feel woozy and he goes, how are you feeling? And I'm like, oh, I'm feeling a little drowsy. He goes, oh, okay. He goes, that's good. It's because of the pill I gave you. And I go, huh? He goes, yes. He said, it's the pill I gave you. I'm very, very sneaky. And I didn't tell you what it was. And I said, well, you're my doctor. If you had asked me to do something, I would have just did it because you're my doctor, right? And he never answered me. He walked away laughing. Um, at this point, I couldn't, you know, talk and say what was on my mind. In my head, I was, you know, freaking out, but I couldn't really say anything. So the doctors came and they got me, and they told me to count backwards from 10 when they were giving me the anesthesia. Um, I'm condensing this story um, to fit it in. So um, they put the anesthesia on me. I started counting backwards from 10, and by the time I got to, like, 4 or 3, I was out. Uh, next thing I know is I felt my body drop and my spirit shoot up and shot straight through the hospital and headed literally to the edge of the universe. Um, mind you, uh, I was passing planets and so forth, and by this point I had not read the Bible at all. So I had no scriptural reference to go off of for this experience. So... I'm heading towards this light, and I'm heading towards it super fast. And within a second or two, I'm standing in this grassy meadow. As far as I can see, there's nothing, over, nothing by the horizon but grass meets sky. And I'm like, whoa. And I'm like, wow, what happened? And I heard a voice say, you left your body. I said, okay. I said, um... I said, I said, well, what happened? It's like, you left your body. I said, where am I? I heard the voice say heaven. I said, wow. 
somebody's answering me. And I said, yes. I said, oh, wow, I get to get all the important questions out the way. Is God real? Yes. Jesus real? Yes. Holy Spirit real? Yes. Bible real? Yes. I said, oh, okay. Got all the important questions out the way. And then something told me, you know, I felt like I had to ask the question. I said, who is God? And when I asked that question, I couldn't comprehend the understanding of who God is. Um, my head began to fill with, like, endless knowledge. And, by the way, you know, I can give you guys a description on the feeling of this place in a little while. But as far as I could see, it was not McGrath meets sky. And McGrath was praising God. And when McGrath would praise God, these white, their praises would come up in the form of white crystals and shoot into the air, into this specific direction. And it was like the northwest direction. And then I um, heard the sky. The sky was praising God. And its praises were like a river of light going towards the northwest direction of where I was standing. And then I heard something say, like, all creation praise God. I was like, wow. So I turn and I look at, I look behind me and there's this big giant hole with darkness in the middle, and I could tell, like, okay, that's where I came out of. And then I turn uh, to my northeast side, and I see a bunch of people there staring at me. And it's men, women, and children. The youngest child looked like they were, like, four years old, three years old, four years old. And the oldest person looked like they were, like, anywhere between 30 to 35 years old. I look over at my northwest because I felt something warm, like, calling out to me as everybody said hi to me. And I see a giant tree and the tree was glowing three different colors. And it had these fruits growing off of it that I had never seen before. So I go to walk towards the tree and I felt a hand on my shoulder and it felt really warm and really loving and really welcoming. And he said, don't go yet. It's not your time. And he, he asked, how are you doing young man? And I instantly knew who it was. And I turned around and it was my great-grandfather. My great-grandfather had died eight days before I went into surgery. About eight, yeah, eight days before I went into surgery. And, no, sorry, a month and eight days before I went into surgery. And he was over 100 years old. When I seen him, he looked like he was like 30 to 35 years old. I dare to say 33. And he was dressed really nice. And I was like, oh, my goodness. And I was like, I'm so happy to see you. And he goes, how you doing, young man? I said, I'm doing good now that I see you. And he said, don't go yet. And I said, what do you mean? He said, don't go. If you go, you haven't completed your purpose. Everybody's going to miss you. So I was like, wow, what are you talking about? And next thing I know is I felt the tree. The tree felt like it was calling me. So I turn, and the tree is off in the far distance. And as fast as you can, faster than you could think about traveling somewhere, that's how fast I traveled to that tree. Next thing you know is I'm about five feet or so in front of it, and I felt like the tree was calling me, and I reached out to go touch the tree and walk towards it, and I felt the urgency of my great-grandfather grab my shoulder in a not forceful way, but in a way of like, hey, pay attention to me. So 
I turn around and I go, yes, Pop Pop. And he goes, don't go yet. It's not your time. If you go, you haven't completed your purpose. Everybody's going to miss you. And I'm like, what are you talking about? But I already knew what he was talking about. So he stands in front of me, jumps in front of me, puts both his hands on my shoulders, and all of a sudden there's a big flash of white light. And I'm standing in the hospital. Now, my mother, who was also visually impaired, she had just made it to the hospital as they put me under, so I didn't get to see her. And I turned and I looked over to the side, and I can see the doctors trying to resuscitate me. And I said, oh, okay. And my mom is sitting there, and she's praying to God, and she's rolling her cane across the floor. She's like, go at Everett, you better not die on me. And I said, Mom, I love you. And she goes, Everett, you better not die on me. I said, Mom, I love you. And she goes, if you die on me, I'm going to come up there and kick your butt. And I said, Mom, I love you. And I went to go bend over to give her a hug and a kiss because I could feel this overwhelming love coming out of me. And she stopped rolling her cane, and she felt, she knew I was there. She felt my presence. And she looked up at me dead in my eyes. She said, Everett, you better come back to me right now. I'm not playing with you. And I went and I gave my mother a hug. And when I touched her, there was a big flash of white light, and I was back in that place again. So I was back in heaven. So one of my uncles jumped in front of me, put his hands on my shoulders, big flash of white light. Next thing I know, is I'm 30,000, 40,000 feet in the air, and I'm flying towards an airplane that my father's on because he's going to uh, going to perform. And I go through the window of the plane, and I'm standing in his aisle, and I look up, and I see his letter and his aisle number, and I'm like, Pop, I love you. And my father just keeps looking out the window, and I'm like, Pop, I love you. And he was praying in his heart, going, God, please don't take my son. Like, he knew that there was something wrong, but he couldn't put his finger on it. So all I kept saying was, Papa, I love you. The stewardess came over and asked my father, hey, sir, is there anything that you need? He goes, no, I'm okay. And I sat down next to him in the chair that was next to him because it was empty. And I said, Papa, I love you. And he didn't answer me because he didn't know I was there, but he had a feeling that something was up. And I went to go put my hand on his, and there was a big flash of light. Next thing you know is I'm back in heaven. So that happened various times until I got to see all my family members that I was close to. And then the last time I got back to heaven, the fruit that was on that tree, I see people grab it. And they were dancing around, and they were biting this fruit. And the nectar from the fruit that came out would hit the ground and flowers would instantly spring up and be praising God. And then I heard something say, there's no such thing as waste in heaven. And I was like, whoa. And I was like, I'm going to join these people. And my great-grandfather said, Everett, it's time for you to go. He goes, it's not, it's not your time yet. you got to go before it's too late. And I go, what are you talking about? And he pointed. And when he pointed, there was the, the giant black hole that um, I was talking about earlier, it was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So the next thing I know is we go from being several miles away from it in estimation to I'm standing five feet in front of it. They tell me to go through the hole. 
And I'm like, well, I don't really want to go through. I want to stay here. And they're like, you got to go. You're not done yet. So I tried to go through the hole and I got pushed back. And I said, you know what? And I wasn't really trying much. I said, you know what? I guess I'm stuck here with you guys. You guys are stuck with me. And they go, no, you got to try again. But then I tried to go through the hole again and I started to feel the hole pushing me back again. And I gave it everything I had. And I said, oh man, like, I'm not going to make it. And then all of a sudden I felt all these hands on my back and my shoulders and I turned to look and it was everybody that was there. They pushed me right through. And next thing you know, I was in my body and I woke up and the doctors were like, oh my goodness, what happened? They were like, get the equipment on him, yada, yada, yada. And then they start wheeling me down the hall like you see on like, I guess the ER shows and stuff. And the doctors go, he was, he was dead. And the other doctor goes, shut up. And then the original doctor goes, he was dead, but he was dead, dead. How do you die for over six hours to come back? And the other doctor says, dude, shut up. He's awake. He can hear you. So after that surgery, I, you know, told the doctors and stuff and they can't check on me. I said, listen, I, I know what happened. I know I died, but it's okay because, you know, God had to show me some stuff. And they're like, we're not at liberty to discuss the operations and procedures of your surgery. This is no longer a talking point, blah, blah, blah. And they walked off. So that happened various amounts of times uh, when I was able to actually see my mother. And she came and I said, hey, mom. I said, you know, I saw you. And she goes, I know you did. And I said, what? She goes, yeah, I saw you. I said, you saw me? She goes, no, but I felt you. And she goes, every mother knows the feeling of their child, the presence of their child. And I said, oh, okay. So, well, I don't have to convince her. So then I um, told my mother, I said, hey, mom, you got to call dad. And she goes, oh, why? I said, because I got something to tell him before I forget. And my mother calls my father up and he goes, hey, how you doing? I go, Pop, I saw you. He goes, yeah, yeah, I saw you yesterday. I said, no, Pop, I saw you today. My father starts laughing. He goes, <laughs> what kind of drugs are they giving him? So I told him what kind of plane he was in, where he was sitting, the number, everything, what the stewardess looked like and everything. And, uh, you know, I guess the nicest way to say it is it kind of freaked my dad out. Uh, he was like, wow, like, but pretty much, I don't know what to say to you. Um, how did you know all that? And my father told me later on, like, he felt me, but he also felt like there was something wrong. And, uh, yeah, so uh, that's my story. I have a comment, uh, a question, actually, I've written. That is a very fascinating and inspirational story, by the way. It touched Thank us you. all. My question is, in the year and a half between your diagnosis and the surgery, uh, you managed, obviously, to remain alive at that point. What happened? Was your tumor stabilizing? Yes, yeah, so they put me on several different medications, one of which is to reduce the levels of the tumor that the tumor was secreting. So my tumor was stable, but they put me on steroids. So I had ballooned up to over 500 pounds. Um, the tumor of course, was stable, but I had dealt with all other issues, including uh, seizures and all kinds of stuff. 
So, so the way you described things uh, when you were diagnosed, uh, they were telling you that the tumor was suffocating you and all that. And then mm-hmm. a year and a half later, you're still alive. You have a gallbladder issue. And obviously, you're very much alive now. So whatever treatment you're ultimately getting must really, really be working well. Well, that's what happens when you hold on to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Absolutely. So can I ask several quick questions? I'm sure we're um, eating into audience time. But the first question I have for you is, they mentioned you mentioned that sort of strange pill that they gave you before the surgery. Did you ever find out what that pill was? No. So what, what happened was after the surgery, I had talked to the doctors about that. The doctors said, nobody gave you a pill. I said, yes, they did. And me and the doctors kind of got into a fuss about it. So what happened was they checked with security. And they saw on their camera somebody enter my room. But the way they have the camera situated is they have cameras in the room to monitor everything in the room. They have a camera at the door from one side and a camera from, on the door from the other side. According to the nurses, the staff, and even one of the doctors who didn't want me to say anything, it looks like on the camera, something, not even someone, something entered my room, and it didn't go through the door. It came from the direction of the door as if it had came through the door, but it did not come through the door. What does that mean? I don't know. In other words, they're saying that it had somewhat of the shape of a person, but it was a very dark figure. It was wearing a doctor's coat, but yeah. So that, but but that person didn't sound very friendly to you, from the way I understand your story, right? He sort of he sort of laughed at you, say, you know, yeah, you're my, you know, and gave you the pill, and sort of walked away. It didn't sound like a very friendly experience. With you know, with no, that it wasn't. Yeah. So I have two other questions. How how's your tumor now? So recently, I've been going to doctor's appointments and so forth, and the tumor has grown. Um, they say a normal a normal tumor, is a normal giant tumor is about two centimeters. Uh, the tumor, uh, this tumor is 8.94 centimeters now. It has grown over the last few years, and, I mean, I hypothesize that part of it is probably all kinds of stuff, including the traumatic traumas that I've been through recently in terms of the last few years. And I was abused by my now (laughs) ex-wife. I'm newly married, so I'm very happy about that. But um, I think those are some of the things that have caused it to grow. And currently right now, um, I've for the last two to three months, I've been on nothing but tons of doctor's appointments. And currently right now, it seems like they want me to do a test and my current options, which I mean, I don't know if they've changed. I have an appointment in about two weeks, are radiation, chemo or surgery. Um, I am currently seeking out alternative methods. Um, I've talked to a lot of different people about alternative methods, but as you guys could probably guess, alternative methods are very uh, expensive. <laughs> And, um, yeah, just become difficult. So I had set up a uh, GoFundMe, and uh, I ended up getting, like, $1,500, which is 
which I've used to seek out of alternative methods of uh, healing. What treatment were you on between the time that your tumor was, for lack of a better term, suffocating you, as you described, and when it went to its lowest diameter? What treatment were you on at that point? So the tumor had never actually shrunk. What happened was they took a piece of it out of my nose so it wasn't suffocating me because I couldn't breathe through my nose. Okay. And they just continued to treat me with uh, one primary medication, then a bunch of secondary medications, including steroids, which caused me to balloon. Yeah, steroids have definite downsides. You don't want to be on steroids for as long as you, you know, as as short time as possible. Um, My last question um, is you had this, Remarkable experience with heaven and meeting your grandfather and your uncles and, you know, uh, sort of teleporting around to, you know, various places to say, uh, that you love various people. And then you came back. I was being pushed back into the, in, back into your body, as it were. How is your, how has your life changed since that experience? Wow. Uh, I, I mean, a lot. It, I always knew God existed, but because I was hurt through a lot of religious um, religious things throughout my life. I I kind of wondered a lot of things. And so it changed it because I know without a shadow of a doubt, God loves me. And I was somebody that essentially I grew up and I never felt loved. I felt maybe a little bit loved by certain people, but they weren't people that were frequently in my life. Like I'd see them maybe once, twice a year. Um, so it changed it in that way. It also helped me to not fall into some of the pitfalls that I think followers of Christ fall into, especially a lot of the New Age stuff. And it helped me carve out and work towards a better and bigger relationship with our Lord and Savior, our Lord Jesus. I would say those are like some of the biggest things. Also, you know, I know that I have a purpose and I'm not just a mistake. And yeah. So how have you, uh, I can't remember the words you used, uh, how have you sort of changed your relationship with Jesus? And the sort of other question is, uh, how have you, um, what is your purpose now? All right. Good stuff. So uh, I have a relationship with Jesus. That That's how it changed. As before, I don't really feel like I had one because I didn't, I didn't know about Jesus. Like I didn't read the Bible until after this experience. Um. So it helped me kind of buckle down and go, whoa, like Jesus really did this for me. So that's the first thing. Um, what was your other question? I was just curious to know what, what, what you think your, your mission is, your purpose in life. Yeah, you said you, you, have, a, you oh. have a mission. What, what is that mission? Oh, yes. Uh, our purpose, uh, you know, the purpose, purpose. of life. Purpose, that. yeah. Sorry, yeah. So what's your purpose? Purpose of life is love. Now, that translates into many different things for many different people. But the number one thing that we all are supposed to be doing is love. Loving the people around us, uh, loving ourselves, and realizing that all of us are only here because of the love that God shows us each and every millisecond of every day. Now, by love, I mean like actually loving people. I don't mean enabling them. I think the world that we live in now labels enabling as love and being very passive as love. Not the kind of love I'm talking about. Telling the truth is a form of love as long as your intention behind it 
is to help the person, not to harm them. Um, you, mm-hmm. you are yeah. listening to Win Perspective. I am Bob Branco, and, of course, we have Peter Alcho with us. Our guest is Everett O'Neill, telling us a very inspirational and touching story about its life, very incredible story. And now I think it's time that we bring our participants uh, into the program. So I'm going to ask Stephen Bauer if there are any hands raised. Yeah, we have two so far, and the first is Penny Moss. Penny, welcome to In Perspective. Hey, how are y'all? Hey, Penny. Um, Great. I think this is very fascinating. Uh, I am I am a Christian, and I do believe in NDE experiences. I wanted to mention that a couple of scriptures came into my mind as you were talking. Uh, one of them, I think it's in Matthew, talked about when the Pharisees uh, were criticizing Jesus and he said, uh, that if, uh, I think when the people were praising God and, um, they said, if, he said, if they didn't praise him, the stones would cry out. And that just, uh, your story validates the fact that all creation praises him. And I think that's so fascinating. And that you were able to see people that you knew that you'd never met, but you recognized that to me is also very fascinating. And I, I would think that your experience has made you less fearful about death in dying. I would assume that. Is that correct? Yes and no. Um, mm-hmm. For years, I'm not going to lie to you, for years, I had a hard time trying to live because I had never lived for myself before. Uh So I thought about consistently all the stuff that I saw there and I go, man, I want to be back there. Mm -hmm. Like this, this place doesn't care. Like we think we feel now we don't feel anything compared to when we will in heaven. It's just another, it's just another level, which I guess I'll detail at another time. But Yes, but my most recent um, hiccups in my health currently right now, I do have some anxiety sometimes, not because I doubt where I'm going, but because I don't want to leave my wife. Uh huh. And over the last few years where I've gotten married to her, I have just started to live my life the way I, somewhat the way I want to. Mm-hmm. And I'm enjoying it, and I don't, I don't feel like I'm ready to leave yet. And I think God wants you to enjoy it, Everett, and that's why you are still, you know, functioning mm-hmm. as much as you can. Yes, sir. Thank you, Penny. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Appreciate Penny. It. Yes. Who else do we have, Steve? Uh, next you, up, we have Beth. Hi, Beth. Hey, this is Beth hey. from Virginia Beach. And hey, Beth. Hi. Very fascinating. Maybe I missed this, Everett, but I'm confused. When you first died i thought you said that uh you you were shown that god existed but god was an entity it wasn't you didn't see jesus and god the father and the holy spirit and i'm confused about that how did you come to the it's kind of a jump from that to your relationship with jesus now did i miss something and my last question is you, I guess when you died, you saw everything perfectly, and I'm assuming that you are either totally blind or visually impaired. And I wonder, do you want to see 
everything now in 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 this life? Are you would you be interested in that? Thank you very much. No problem. So, yes, I do want to see in this life. Um, I do have a visual impairment, and I would like to be able to fully see again. Um, I'm not really sure how to answer your first question. I'm not sure I'm understanding it. So let let, um, let me tr- let me let me try to take a run at it if you don't mind, Everett, because I think what I heard you say was, as you were going through your health challenges, you sort of had an understanding that God existed, but it wasn't a personal relationship, and that that near death experience that you had made that a personal experience. Is that a is that a fair summary of what I heard or of what you were trying to yeah. say? Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was my understanding at least of what of, of what Everett said. You know that, and that meant it's true for many of us, right? We, it, uh, it's hard for us to have that personal relationship. We think we uh, we have a distant relationship, perhaps, but it takes something special for many of us to have a more personal relationship. And for uh, forever, it sounds like it was this near death experience in heaven. Anybody else, Steve, that's raising their hand at this time? Yeah, we got several more. Next up is Doc Udley. Welcome. Well, good afternoon. First of all. Well, I am one that has also experienced a near-death experience, an out-of-body experience. I was uh, a Christian at the time, and I remember it very vividly. I did not get to heaven. I recall going through a tunnel, and it was like going to Yosemite, and there was a very bright light at the end of the tunnel. It was brighter than any sunshine could be, and I was told to return, and I came back, and I can remember hearing, it was kind of like a klaxon horn for a fire drill, and I was up in the ceiling viewing my body on the floor, and realized I was screaming. And I did not know about near-death experiences, and it wasn't until I related this experience that somebody said, oh, yeah, you need to read Kubler-Roth, and I began to read some of the uh, books about this, and I said, yeah, that's that's what I experienced. So I, I know that that is a reality. And it's, for me, I have absolutely no fear of death. I'm, I, I'm not going to do anything to bring it about. It will be done in God's will. But I'm saying, even so, come Lord Jesus, I'm ready. I'm, you know, if it happens before I finish speaking, that's fine with me. If it doesn't, that's still fine with me. I'm, you know, I'm 91. I was married over 70 years. My wife passed last year. And instead of moaning and groaning about my loss, I have focused upon her being in heaven because she was a Christian too and how fortunate she is. And I focus upon all of the good times we had and the family that we had together. And and just, it has been such a blessing. 
And I'm just so happy for her. She had dementia. She knew it and hated it. And so now that's, that is no more. She's at peace with that. And she's with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it's a, it's a blessing. Thank you, everything. Doc. So thank, thank you, Doc. Everett, uh, thank you for sharing your experience. Thank you, Doctor. And thank you for sharing yours as well. Uh, okay, welcome. Steve. All right. Next up, we've got Nora. Nora, welcome. Yeah, thank you. Like you've been here and Everett, um, um, and one, yes, very, your story was very, very fascinating. And I can't think of a question. My question is, um, does your, does your wife know anything about the whole story of her near death experience? Did my wife know anything about my near death experience? Let me, let, let me ask the question in a slightly different way. Have you told your wife, your current wife, about this experience, and how did she react? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It, you know, it makes for great table talk. Like, hey, you know what? I died before and came back after six plus hours. <laughs> I'm just playing. I like to joke. Um, yes, okay. yes, I did. Uh, both, both my ex-wife and my current wife knew. Uh, you know, know about it. I told my, uh, I told my current wife. Uh, wow. Yeah, we we had been dating for some time before I had told her um, about it because I I was very careful uh, this time around going around the dating pool because I didn't want somebody to date me based off of the fact that they wanted me for my story and not me. Mm-hmm. Good point. Yeah, absolutely. My ex wife was a woman she- that wanted me more for the prestige and showing me off to people. More than she actually wanted me at at a point. Anything else, Nora? No, that's that's really true. You got to be really wise about this kind of stuff. You really do. Amen. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Nora. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you, Nora. All right, Steve. Oh, next up we we have Beth. Oh yes, the other Beth. Beth. Yes, welcome, Beth. Hello. There you are. Hello. That was a. Interesting story. I've I've also kind of had a near death experience. Um, mine wasn't that long, but uh, I I knew I went through the light and and things like that. And uh, uh, they carried me off a bus. I was I was having a seizure, but um, it was very it was very strange. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to come back, but uh, yeah, I was told I had to. Yeah, that's very common in a lot of these situations. But um, what I so you weren't a Christian then when you had your near death experience. I was a Christian, you- um, but I was also just I was a very skeptical Christian. Like I hadn't sat down to read the Bible. Or anything like that because I, you know, not trying to be funny and I'm not trying to um, insult anybody if you are um, Catholic, but I was raised Catholic and the way I was raised was it was about the religion, not the relationship. Mm-hmm. So I was hurt 
by Catholicism and Christianity in some ways resembled Catholicism to me. So when it came to sitting down and having a personal relationship with Jesus or reading the Bible, I was more of the thought process of, uh, I could do that, but it's a really big book, and that looks like that's going to take a lot of time. Do you read the Bible uh, now? Yes, sir. I get up every morning with my beautiful wife, and we read a few chapters uh, every day. So we go through the Bible at least once a year. No, that doesn't surprise me about, uh, you said you, you were raised Catholic. I I am too. I mean, I still do some of my Catholic prayers and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and um, my daughter was the one that was telling me that uh, you you have to re- have a relationship with God. And I said, I don't know how. Mm-hmm. Ah. And, and I, so, I, I, yeah, go ahead. Until I had that, until I had that near-death experience, I said, I don't know how to have a relationship because they don't teach you, they don't tell you that in the Catholic Church, unfortunately. They don't teach you in most Christian churches either. Exactly. <laughs> and, 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 and in fairness, and fairness to both the Christians and the Catholics, and uh, it's it's a very personal thing. It's really hard to sort of. Mm-hmm. It, it is a really personal thing, and every journey is very different. And I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's not the kind of thing that's easy to, 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 to teach. You know, it, it's, it's a very unique experience for each one of us. Beth, thank you yes, so much for, for your comments. Thank you. That was a we very good presentation. Four more minutes. Four all, minutes. All I'm going to say, all I'm going to yeah. say is somebody can, somebody can guide you into the right path of having a relationship with Jesus. But honestly, the only one that can have that relationship is you. Yeah. And it has to take you to earnestly and honestly want to seek him and be with him and know his will. Like, when I got to heaven, it confounded me how much God loves us. Mm -hmm. And that everything God does for us from the last breath you take to the next breath you take is about how much he loves us. And once you get once you get even a smidgen of that, that's when that relationship begins because you realize that it's not because you do something, it's not if you do something, it's in spite of what you've done that he loves you. Excellent. We have about three more minutes. We have time for at least one more call. Uh, Steve, do we have any hands raised at the moment? Yeah, we've got uh, two more. Next is Carla. Yeah. Carla. Yeah. Hello. Very fascinating story. Can you hear me? Yeah, now we can. I can hear you. Very, very, very fascinating and encouraging story. Um, I have a quick question. Um, um, Since you have read through the Bible now, and um, uh, what is your reaction to that other side of it, um, where it does clearly say in the Bible that not everybody's going to say, oh, you know, going to say, Lord, Lord, and, um, you know, what's your reaction to Revelation, um, you know, the um, chapter 20, when they talk about the, you know, the, if you're not in the book of life, that, um, you know, and I mean, I guess what's your feeling about hell and the other side of it? So I didn't go. I have. Um, I think I gave it to you at one point, Mr. Bronco, where I give a bigger, more detailed description of what I went through in my life after death experience. But 
Um, my perspective is I know hell is real. I know hell, everybody thinks hell is a place that God sends them to. I beg to differ after my experience. Hell is not a place that God sends you to. It's a place that people send themselves to because of their lack of relationship with God or with Jesus. I agree, because so, God's a loving God. God doesn't want exactly. people tortured, living or dead. So I, I, I agree with that 100%. The Bible tells us that hell was made for Satan. Yeah, he runs Jesus. hell. He's the one that lures people. Well, it was, made, it was made for. Yeah, yeah. It was made for him. It, he doesn't run it. That's that's the crazy thing. Is a lot of people believe God runs heaven and he doesn't run hell. God made hell for Satan, not yeah. to be there in comfort, but to be there as a forever prisoner. And what happens is, is when people sin and they walk away from Jesus, they take on the nature of Satan, which no longer allows Jesus to stand in front of you. And say, listen, I bled for Robert. I bled for Stephen. I bled for Mary. I bled for Everett. Because it's like you love that sin nature more than you love Jesus. We have one minute, so we just have time to get a few thoughts, maybe a few seconds from our final caller. Okay, uh, next up it's Sally. I Sally, you've got about you. 30 seconds. Okay, I just wondered, what do you think your purpose was in coming back? Was it just to share not just, but to share this experience with other people? Or is it more global than that? So I have more revelation as time kind of goes on. But the number one thing that I have learned and that I know from that experience, it is to share love, right? And like I said before, love is I love you in spite of. It's not uh, going to enable you to do these things. And the love that I'm trying to spread is the love of Jesus. I have run into so many people. I mean, my wife tried to laugh at this to a degree, but I've run into perfect strangers where I'm talking to them, and they've told me they've been hurt by church. They never want to go to church and all this other stuff. But after me, you know, saying, like, me not being me, first of all, but me showing the love of God, it opens them up to going to church, and then they start to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Yeah, We are out of time, unfortunately. Everett, this was very fascinating, uh, and uh, I, I think you've really inspired a lot of people, and I, I certainly believe in everything that you've said, uh, and, and I have a lot of faith in Jesus as well. I go to church every week, and um, thank you very much for appearing on our show today, and we appreciate you very much. No problem, and if anybody wants to talk about it or whatever, I can send Mr. Bronco um, the testimony I gave where I was interviewed for it. And if anybody still has any further questions, uh, I can give my contact information and they can reach me. Thank you very much. Uh, next, next week we're going to have Tom Sullivan on the program. He's an actor, musician, author. He's done a lot. He's been made movies. It's going to be fascinating to talk to Tom. Peter, thank you very much. Steve, thanks for being your host today as well, and our participants. This is Bob Branco, and as I say every week, go safe with God's abundant blessings. Have a great week, everybody.